of God's people said amen. amen. Before I bring the message, I want to draw your attention to something uh, Jordan was saying about the... Uh, uh, Jonathan Youssef has a, a really amazing podcast, if you haven't listened to it, and he has three different episodes where he discussed this whole issue of Roe v. Wade. I hope you're going to make note of it and, and watch it. And also next Sunday, just to remind you that uh, we have one combined service, it's annual service that we've been having to thank God for America. It's a very special time, so please come and uh, be prepared to be honored and thank you for your service and all the branches of the military. They're going to be a great orchestra and a great celebration. So please come, invite your neighbors and friends. C.S. Lewis, and many of you have read C.S. Lewis, and you know about his amazing talent and ability. One day, he went to hear a young curate. Now, in England, the word curate uh, is the person who just came out of seminary, was ordained, would be like an associate pastor, just out of seminary being maybe two or three years. I used to be a curate once when I was ordained a long, long time ago. And so he wanted to go and hear this young curate in this Anglican church uh, preach, and uh, he heard him say the following, and I'm going to quote here, if you reject Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you will suffer grave eschatological ramification. <laughs> well, after the service, uh, imagine you preaching as a young preacher, and C.S. Lewis is in the congregation, but he, after the service, he went straight for the young man and shook his hand, and he said to him, uh, young man, did you mean to say that those who reject Jesus Christ will spend eternity in hell? He said, yes, that's exactly right. That's precisely right, sir. He said, okay, why didn't you just say so? <laughs> Nothing like straight talking. Now, I fully understand, however, the reluctance of this young curate preaching about hell. I fully sympathize with him because the term hell, the place called hell, and the preaching on hell is not the most popular subject <laughs> uh, that you talk about or address in polite company. Just read not long ago that 90% of American preachers, that's 9-0, 90%, of America's preachers avoid the subject of hell altogether. It doesn't surprise me either. And yet, please listen, the very freedom of choice that God gives us to either believe in Him or not, the very fact that God gives us a choice to be reconciled to God the Father through God the Son. The very fact that God went through an agonizing experience of sacrificing His one and only Son in order to invite us to come to Him. This very freedom of choice supposes that we're also free to reject Him 
and end up in that place of eternal torment and suffering. But that's not all. Hell was created originally, I'm going to show you from the Scripture. It was created, it was designed, it was built for Satan and the demons and his followers, the, the fallen angels. Satan and the demons don't have a choice. They're going to end up in hell. But people have a choice. Humanity has a choice. God gives us a choice. In fact, Acts 17 said God commands every man everywhere, every woman everywhere to repent, for He has appointed a day in which He will judge the world. So believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the vast majority of you, listen to me. The very concept of hell, the very knowledge of hell, the very description of hell in the Bible should make us weep over the fact that some people would choose to go there for all of eternity. Revelation chapter 20 tells us that immediately before the return of Christ, there will be a tidal wave of rebellion and sin across the globe, not just in one country, but across the globe. And what we are seeing in the streets of America and many uh, Western countries, what we're seeing in many countries in Africa and Asia and elsewhere, we are seeing the spirit of anarchy has begun, that the spirit of anarchy is permeating every culture and every part of the world right now. The hatred toward God and His children is rampant. The anger uh, 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 that we're watching on the screen night after night is just the beginning. Why? Because the devil and his fallen angels, his demons, they know that their time is about to come when they are thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophets had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever. Think about this, forever. Now, praise God, they're going to end up there. The great deceiver who deceived kids into rebellion, the great deceiver who deceived husbands and wives into destroying marriages, the great deceiver who deceived people into thinking that God does not love them, the great deceiver who deceived people into thinking that, 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 that they can be good without God, the great deceiver who deceives people into stealing and murdering and destroying peoples and their reputations, he and all his cronies will be thrown into the lake of fire. Praise God. Praise God. Question. How do we know this? How do we know that this is going to happen? Well, I'm glad you asked. I want to tell you. Listen carefully, please. When Jesus died and rose again, He announced that sentence upon Satan and his demons. And when Jesus comes back, He's going to carry out that sentence. In John chapter 12, when Jesus was preparing His disciples 
And you see it throughout the Scripture. <clears throat> he was constantly preparing his disciples, but there is a significant part of John 12 here. He's preparing him about the crucifixion. He's preparing him about resurrection. He's preparing him to understand why he left the glories of heaven and came to earth in order to redeem every repentant sinner. While he was preparing them, there were Greeks. There were Greeks who came for the celebration of the Passover. Obviously, there were Gentiles who are God-fearing Gentiles, and these are the very people that Paul went to from town to town to town. There were some Greeks who, who heard about Yahweh, and they wanted to fear Yahweh, but they were not fully into the covenant. So these Greeks who came into Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, and so they went to the disciples, and they said, please, we want to see Jesus. This is, of course, an indication that now the gospel is going to begin into the globe, into the world, not just in the Jewish nations, but beyond into the Gentile world, into the Greek world and the Roman world. The gospel now is going to permeate the world. The gospel is about to impact the globe. And so Philip and Andrew goes, they go to Jesus and they, 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 they present that request of these Greeks, these Gentiles. And in chapter 12, verses 23 and 24, Jesus answered, as soon as they told him there are Greeks here who want to see you, he said, the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's, of course, talking about his own life. He's talking about his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and glorification. So he goes on in verse 32 and 30, 31 and 32. Now the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world is, be cast out. And when I'm lifted up, can you say that with me? And when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. What is Jesus saying? Listen carefully. Satan's unabated rule over the world is finished. That Satan, whom I have thought that the crucifixion will frustrate God's plan, the reverse happens. When I am raised up, say it with me again, when I will draw people, for, all people from every nation from every tribe, from every language, to myself. And this is the remnant. This is the church of Jesus Christ in every corner of the globe now that we're seeing it as we minister to the world and we're seeing it globally. People are coming to Christ under the severe and the worst difficult circumstances. They're coming to love Jesus. And some people here who pretended to be Christians, they're falling away. God is preparing His church for His return. And he's saying that time, he said, this Satan's condemnation by Jesus, now it's, he is condemned. He is sentenced. And there's a promise that he's being sentenced to the lake of fire, and it's just a matter of time now. For in his first coming, Jesus bound the demonic powers and released some people. But in his second coming, he will release all of his children from satanic oppression. In his first coming, Jesus raised few people from the dead, and they all died again. But when, on His second coming, Jesus will raise all His children into life everlasting. 
in His first coming, He delivered many demon-possessed, but in His second coming, Jesus will set all of His children free from satanic oppression. Some years ago, I was preaching a sermon. I was calling it The Anatomy of Hell. It's not the first time I preach on the subject, by the way. Those of you who've been around, you know, I'm not hesitant to preach the whole truth. And I was preaching on this message, The Anatomy of Hell, number many, many years ago. And this young man walked up to me after the service. He said, Michael, why do you even talk about the subject? It's such a negative thing. I told him, because it is Satan's least favorite topic. (laughs) It is Satan's most unfavored subject. He doesn't want to be reminded of his future. He knows it. He doesn't want to be reminded of it. Satan does not want preachers to get people to run out of his camp and get to heaven because he wants them to spend eternity with him in that lake of fire. It was prepared for him, but then it's going to end up having people who followed him into that lake of fire. You see, Satan loves it when people joke about hell. He loves it when people trivialize hell. He loves it when people mock hell. Now, those of you who have known me for a long, long time, They know that I don't have joy in my heart preaching on the subject. I preach on it with grief in my heart simply because I visualize people, people that I've witnessed to and rejected the gospel, and they're going to end up there for all of eternity. But those of you also who know me know that I will not preach anything less than the whole truth. This week I was thinking about preaching the whole truth and not compromising, and and I was thinking about the circuit rider preacher. Now, back in the old days, uh, there were, particularly in the Methodist tradition, there was these uh, circuit riders. They would go around. uh, John Wesley, for some reason, bless his heart, he he just didn't have much of a, a home life, so he, got the, he wanted his preachers to travel around, not to settle in a church. <laughs> and so they would go around, that's called circuit riders. And there was a circuit rider by the name of Peter Cartwright. Read about him. He, he, there's material written about this man. And he went to preach in one of these sophisticated, urbane, uh, debonair church. Cartwright was known for preaching straightforward. So as he entered the church, that church on Sunday, people were coming up to him, Mr. Cartwright, Mr. Cartwright, you must never preach on hell today. You must never preach on hell today because President Andrew Jackson is in the congregation. (laughs) He said, okay, I will not preach on hell. Fine. Then he got up to preach. And the first thing he said, he said, I heard that President Andrew Jackson is in the congregation today. So I want to tell you something before I preach. (laughs) 
He said, President Andrew Jackson is going to hell if he does not believe in Jesus Christ as his only Savior and Lord. Well, people were aghast. I mean, they were horrified. They did not know which way to look. They were so embarrassed. And immediately after the service, they were all leaving with chins up in the air. And, but it wasn't so with President Andrew Jackson. After the service, he made his way down to Mr. Cartwright, and he shook his hands very warmly. And he said the following to him. I'm going to quote this. I don't mess it. He said, Sir, I want to tell you this morning that if I had a hundred men like you in my regiment, I could take on the world. So before I bring you a message about the biblical teaching of hell or on hell, I need you to know that the vast majority of knowledge, if not all of the knowledge that we have about hell, comes from Jesus. Are you with me? It comes from Jesus. The Jesus that the professing Christians uh, think that he's meek and mild, milk toast Jesus, a benign, harmless old man like Santa in heaven, just smiling. But beloved, listen to me. Listen to me. Those of us who know him, he is no other than the second member of the Holy Trinity. We know him as the God, the Son, who coexisted with God the Father before all worlds. We know him as the one through whom and for whom the whole world was created. We know him as the one who left the splendor of heaven and came to earth to redeem every repentant, confessing sinner. We know him as the God of mercy and grace, but we also know him as the God of justice, and we don't separate those two. We know him as the God who knows all things, who sees all things, who judges all of humanity. And so in Matthew 25, 40, I'm going to give you a lot of uh, uh, passages from Scripture. You just write them down, go home and study them, okay? You might not have, have actually, we're going to be fast enough to go back and forth. I don't mean to do this, but it is absolutely necessary with this message, okay? Yes. Amen? Yes. Matthew 25, 40. Jesus tells us about the sheep and the goats. Now, let me tell you, city slickers uh, cannot, may not make, cannot tell the difference, but they're very different. They may look alike in many ways, but they are different. And the goats are the ones who look alike sheep. And for a long time, they look alike, and they go with the sheep and move with the sheep, and nobody can tell the difference. But on the last day, Jesus said, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. Let me tell you something. I believe with all my heart that that process of separation has begun, has begun. And the Bible said that the sheep are going to be on his right hand, the right, the right, the right. You got that? And the, and the, and the, and the, and, and the goats, the goats are going to be on his left, the left, the left. Now, this is not supposed to be a political statement, but take it any way you want. 
in verse 41, Matthew 25. Then he will say to those who are on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire. Prepared, here it is, for the devil and his angels. It was originally created for the devil and his angels, but all the goats are going to end up there. Here it is again. Even though those who rejected Jesus as the only Savior and Lord will end up in that lake of fire, and yet that lake of fire originally was created by God for Satan and his demons. And that lake of fire was created before the creation, before Adam and Eve was created. And now it's being ready. It's being ready. Revelation 20 and verse 10 again, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. Beloved, don't miss this. Please don't miss what I'm going to tell you. The Bible makes it very clear that hell is a real place. Hell is not a state of mind. Hell is not the figment of imagination. Hell is not a figure of speech. Hell is a real place, and real people are going to be there for all of eternity. Jesus was very explicit about the intensity of the suffering of those who are going to end up there. For those who said God has so many ways, Jesus is just a way. Jesus emphasized the fact that there is no return from hell. He emphasized it again and again and again. You cannot change your mind or you cannot say, well, no, I'm sorry, I realize what, no, 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 no return. There'll be eternal separation from the loved ones. There'll be eternal separation from everything that is good and holy and beautiful and even God Himself. And so let me tell you four things very quickly, four things that Jesus tells us about hell. And we know from Him who coexisted before all worlds, who knows all about it. Four things. First of all, it's a place of confinement. It's a place of confinement. In Matthew 18, 21 to 35, Jesus gives us a picture of hell like a prison, but not like physical prisons, because physical prisons can imprison the body, but cannot imprison the mind. Or it cannot imprison the soul. It cannot, earthly prisons cannot imprison the spirit, and the spirit, even in physical prison, is free to worship, is free to create, is free to imagine, is free to anticipate, is free to hope. Paul and Silas were beaten up so badly, and then they're thrown into the prison in Philippi, and yet in the middle of the night they were singing their heart out, so much so that an earthquake took place. Recently, I was reading about a 
the fact that there was a time when prisoners in Venice, beautiful Venice, Italy, were housed in a building where there's only one single bridge, one way, still there. It was called the Bridge of Sighs, S-I-G-H-S. These prisoners, whenever they crossed over, they could never cross back. First of all, it's a place of confinement. Secondly, it's a place of darkness, utter darkness. John the Revelator talks about the new Jerusalem, the beautiful city that's coming down for the believers where we're going to be ruling and reigning with Christ forever. He talks about this new Jerusalem, the beautiful city, and he said it will not need the sun because the Son of God, who is the light of the world, He's going to illuminate that city. In contrast, hell is a place of perpetual darkness, continuous darkness. In Matthew 22, 11, Jesus said of these non-believers, he, he said, bind them and cast them into the outer darkness, utter darkness, perpetual darkness. In Matthew 25, 30, Jesus said to the wicked servant, throw him into the outer darkness. Please think about this. Think about this. Think about this. In hell, there will be no day or night. There will be no twilight. There will be no beautiful sunrise and sunset. Not only that, but there is moral, moral, and spiritual darkness. So it's a place of confinement. It's a place of utter darkness. Thirdly, it's a place of suffering, continuous suffering, nonstop suffering. In Matthew 22, the one who intruded at the wedding feast, remember Jesus talks about this wedding feast, and the people who came, they had certain robes to wear, but there was an intruder, somebody who thought that he can go to the wedding without the wedding gown that was handed to the people who'd been invited and came in. He talks about that intruder. And that intruder, my beloved friends, listen to me, and that parable represents anyone, anyone, anyone who thinks that they can come to God their own way. It represents that person who thinks that God has many ways other than Jesus. It represents those who are not wearing the robe of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that He imputes on us when we repent and turn to Him and believe in Him and surrender to Him. This is the one who brought into the lie that he can be good enough for God without Jesus. And Jesus said to this intruder, he said, send him out to the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, utter suffering, constant suffering, continuous suffering. They will never experience one second of relief. There will constant agony constant pain, and constant suffering. In Luke 16, which make yourself a note, because some people and some preachers say this is a parable. It's not a parable. Luke 16, 22 and 24. Luke 16, when Jesus talked about Lazarus and so-called rich man, He was telling us a true story of something had happened that He, as the God of the universe who pre-existed before His incarnation, he knew it took place. 
So he tells this real story, and it's not so much the man was a rich man, but he was a selfish man. He was a self-centered man. We're seeing selfishness now become the religion in the West. And so when Lazarus died and this man, selfish, self-centered man, died, they found a reverse of their fortunes. The selfish, self-centered man ends up in that place of agony, in the place of suffering, and Lazarus was in the bosom of Abraham. That's how the Old Testament thought about paradise. Remember this, before the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and Peter tells us that when the resurrection took place, Jesus went to Hades. He went to that place, and that place was basically a section, one section for the believers like Abraham and Isaac and who are waiting for Jesus to come, and then the other section for those who refuse to believe and have the faith of Abraham. It's the Old Testament faith. There was a huge gulf between them, and yet they could communicate with each other. But when Jesus died and went to the place called Hades and He liberated all the Old Testament believers, He took them into paradise and opened heaven for them. And so, this man, in constant agony and pain, he says, Father Abraham, because you see, like many misguided people think that because he was ethnically Jewish, that Abraham is on his side. But the only people who are going to make it to heaven, not who is ethnical descendants of Abraham, as Galatians and Romans tell us, but it those who have the faith of Abraham those who believe like Abraham. And so he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send me Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am You can see why I don't like to preach on the subject very much. I'm in anguish in these flames. This guy would not lift a finger to minister to Lazarus or anybody else for that matter. Now he wants Lazarus to dip his finger and cool his suffering. I often say all it took a couple of minutes in hell and he became an evangelist. He wanted Lazarus to rise from the dead so he can warn his brothers. It's a place of confinement. It's a place of utter darkness. It's a place of perpetual suffering. And then it's a place of loneliness. A place of loneliness. George Bernard Shaw supposedly have said, the people in hell are among the most interesting people. Most interesting people. And Revelation 21.8 gives us a very short list. The list is in, all over the Scripture. But this is a very short list of those interesting people. The cowardly, faithless, detestable, murderous, sexually pervert, perverted, sorcerers, idolaters, and all the liars. Just, just a short list of the interesting people. I'm sure you wouldn't want to have them at your birthday party. Even so, these people will not fellowship with each other. 
They're not going to be seeing each other and talking to each other. No. Hell is a place of solitary confinement. Everyone is alone. Everyone is isolated. Once there, all feelings of attachment, of friendship, and love are forgotten forever. Beloved, with the stakes this high, are you surprised that we have been fighting an invisible war, as we've been seeing in the last several messages in this series? Are you surprised at the intensity and it coming intense by the day of this invisible war that we are seeing? But praise God, the day is coming for us, the believers, when we'll fight no more. Well, the battle will be over. I thought long and hard this week about ending this series of messages on Satan's I've been talking about him, and I've talked about his strategy. I've talked about his operation. I've been talking about the last six, six weeks. I've been talking about all this. And today I wanted to talk about his destination, where he's going to end. And plead with everyone to turn to Christ while they can, now. But then as I prayed, I, I sense in my spirit the vast majority of you and even many who are watching us around the world I'm committed to life to Jesus Christ. And so I want to take a few moments, literally a few moments, to tell you about the believer's destination. I love that subject far more. I want to tell you about your destination if you have committed your life to Jesus Christ as your only Savior and Lord. Those of us who are battle-weary in this invisible war, more and more becoming visible now. Those of us who have fought the fight of faith, those of us who stood our grounds and refused to compromise with Satan and the world and the culture, those of us who have loved Jesus through thick and thin, those of us who have stood firm when many others are bailing out, we too, going to a physical place, called heaven. Amen. Let me tell you this. The same people who lie about hell, they're the very people who lie about heaven. And they say that heaven is just a state of mind. Heaven is just an abstract idea. Heaven is just a wishful thinking. Heaven is just a figure of speech. No one a million knows. And I'm going to show you from the Word of God. That's not my opinion or my thought. It's from the Word of God. In John chapter 14, in John chapter 14, Jesus called heaven in Greek topos. Can you say topos? I want you to use that word from now on. In Greek, it means a physical location, a place that has boundaries, has people, has space, and in verse 2 of John 14, Jesus said, I go and prepare a what? Topos. Well, I go and prepare what? God bless you. For you. He said, I'm going to go and prepare a figment of your imagination. 
In Acts chapter 7, verses, verse, particularly verse 56, 756 of Acts, Stephen, the very first Christian martyr who's being stoned to death, stoned to death, and he's about to die. He's about to cross to the other side. And he said, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Beloved, that's what every believer in Jesus Christ will see as soon as you close your eyes in death. <laughs> Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, John said, I looked and behold, there's before me a door standing open. Let me tell you six things about heaven. And you know, sometimes I tell you, if you blink, you miss it. This time, you really will. If you blink, you'll miss it. These are just six headlines. Each one of them really deserves a sermon by itself. But I don't have the time, and I know you don't have the patience for me to preach six sermons this morning. <laughs> so here are the six things I want to tell you about heaven, just to whet your appetite. First of all, heaven is a place of uninterrupted fellowship with God. Uninterrupted fellowship. You know, when I think of some of the descriptions of heaven, of Jasper and all these things, nothing excites me more than to know that I'll be looking at Jesus' face. 24-7, I'm looking at Jesus. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 tells us that we now see dimly, as in a mirror. Back then, they didn't have these polished mirrors that we have today. They were kind of like a formica, and when you look at it, you just see a reflection, not very clear. And that is why he uses it here. He said, we look like in this uh, not very clear mirror. But then, say that with me, but face to face, face to face, when Jesus said to the disciples, I go and prepare a topos for you, he said, there you will be with me, glory to God. Not only a place of uninterrupted fellowship with God, but secondly, it's a place of rest from the battle, the spiritual battles, the spiritual battle. Revelation 14, 13, they may rest from their labor and their deeds follow them. Just in case you're visiting, I don't have a cold. I just, my nose run when I cry. Yeah. Now, when resting means that we're going to be idols in heaven. You know, you have this kind of medieval picture of fat babies on a cloud, on a harp, and he used to say, everyone who died become an angel. It's just all f fallacy and fantasy from the Middle Ages and nothing to do with reality. We're not going to be idols in heaven. We're not going to be idols in heaven. Absolutely not. We're going to rest from Satan's harassment. We're going to rest from the spiritual battle. We're going to rest from his constant temptation and attack and oppressing of the believers. But there, and bring me to the third one, we will be serving Jesus. Thirdly, we will be serving Jesus in heaven. There will be a place of serving God day and night. Revelation 22, 3, 
and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. His servants shall what? You know, it's been my privilege to serve Jesus here on earth for nearly 50 years now, over 50 years. I'm also reminding my colleagues all the time. I talk, we talk about it all the time with the pastors, and, and I said, can you think of greater privilege than being serving Jesus full-time? It's an honor and a privilege. It's incredible. It's indescribable. But think about this. In spite of the great honor that we have serving Jesus here, we're going to have the great honor of serving Him all the time. It's a place of uninterrupted fellowship. It's a place of rest from our spiritual battles. It's a place uh, uh, we're serving our great God. And fourthly, it's a place we will have full knowledge. Full knowledge. We'll know everything. We'll know everything. Now that some people still think they know everything, but that's okay. God bless them. Uh, I don't. Here in earth, we face the mystery of suffering. We see, the, and we ask why the righteous have to suffer so much. We don't know why earthquakes and diseases and hurricanes and pain and suffering, and why. Oh, but there, we will know everything. We will know everything. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, again. Now we know in part, but there, say it with me, but I shall know just as I am known. Fifthly, it's a place of continuous glory. Now, I need to explain that because a lot of people, a lot of Christian people, a lot of church people don't understand the word glory. They have all kinds of interpretation of what glory means. I want to tell you what the Bible means by it, and then you decide whatever you want to do. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceedingly an eternal weight of glory. Please listen carefully. What does that mean? Glory in the Scripture reflects the revelation of the character of God in Jesus Christ. And in heaven, are you listening? Say amen. amen. In heaven, God's character will be so revealed in us that we will be transformed and be like Him. Can you get greater glory than that? That's glory to me. That's glory to me. Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Finally, number six. It will be a place of constant worship. Well, it doesn't mean we're going to be singing all the time. Certainly praising is part of it, but that's not all. In fact, I was reading one of the most prominent British member of the House of Lords several years ago 
He was a nominal Anglican, then was converted, and in fact, he accomplished so many great things for that country. And he said, you know, heaven used to bother me, and I, and I really didn't want to even go there, because he thought worship means that it's going to be a perpetual, a continuous, boring 11 o'clock service. When he heard that we'd be worshiping all the time, he said, it's going to be a boring 11 o'clock service. He said, I felt that was like hell. <laughs> and then when he came to know the Scripture, he rejoiced over the fact what the word worship means. It comes from the Latin word worship. So what is Jesus worth to you? A song and a prayer and hallelujah and a couple of bucks and a couple of hours a week? No, 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 no. Worshiping Him is all engrossing. It's all engaging. It's all consuming. I don't know about you, but I'm ready. I'm ready, and I can't wait to get there. So I'm going to ask you, if you bow with me, as we go to the Lord in prayer, every eye is closed and every head is bowed. There may be somebody here today who says, you know, I'm not really sure. Hearing about this hell, understanding for the first time that's only through redemption of Christ, only through salvation, that Christ and Christ alone, and I want to come and give my life to Him. I want you to just raise your hand where you are. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. Just raise your hand where you are so I can pray with you. Just raise your hand right in this place. And if you're watching online, you can raise your hand in your home wherever you are. Raise your hand. So we can pray together. Thank you. I can see your hands. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. I'm not going to prolong this. If you want to make sure that you are going to heaven, not to hell, raise it. I'm going to lead you in a special prayer in a moment. Just raise your hand so I can pray with you and for you. Yes. Thank you. Father, you are a merciful God, and I thank you. For everyone, whether it be in this beautiful building or around the world, who are making that commitment today. I'm going to ask everyone who have raised their hand to pray with me this simple prayer. Father, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I wanted to come to you my way, but now I come to you through Jesus who died for me. Accept me because of the blood that he shed on the cross. I thank you for your promise that all those who come to you, you will never reject. In Jesus' name. And all of God's people say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Let's stand up and sing together.